So this past week, I had an opportunity to participate in a three-day symposium here in Aspen on interfaith dialogue. And it was really a special event. Um, there were people from all over the country and internationally who came to present and to speak. And I know a couple of you were there in the audience. Um, it was a very intimate small group. And I have to say, I was pretty daunted to be in this company. There was the, uh, the chief rabbi of Poland was there. We had the director of the Catholic uh, Center for Holocaust Education was there. We had scholars from various universities and all representing the, the three Abrahamic traditions, the Christian, uh, Judaism, and Islamic faiths were there. And um, for some inexplicable reason, I was on a panel Monday morning with a few of these people. And I, I, uh, my daughter came to hear, actually I begged her to come <laughs> because I wanted a smiling, familiar face in the audience. And so um, shortly before I was going on, the president of ILIF School of Theology was there for my talk. And this is the president of the seminary that I just graduated from a year ago. And so I introduced him to my daughter and we had a nice little conversation and as he walked away, she literally grabbed me by the shoulders and said, oh my gosh, mom, are you so nervous that he's here? <laughs> yes, I am now, thank you. <laughs> oh goodness, so yeah, it was a little daunting, but uh, such an educational opportunity. I'm, I was just so happy to be there. So I'm gonna share with you this morning some of what I spoke about and also a few of the reflections and just gleanings that I got from this really uh, fantastic group of both academics and clergy and um, just a beautiful group. So I wanna start by sharing with you that I grew up Baptist. Um, my mother and father were both Baptist, both of my grandparents were Baptist, and some of you may be familiar that, you know, not that long ago, it was not unusual for Protestants and Catholics to not really get along, or to not see eye to eye on things. And so my grandmother, who I adored, and who really to me was the embodiment of love, truly believed that Catholics were going straight to hell. <laughs> and this was, she was sad about this. But it was nonetheless the reality that she grew up in, and some of you might be familiar with that reality. And so, um, you know, I do know that she had one exception to her rule in 1963 when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. She allowed that that Catholic probably had made it to heaven. <laughs> and so that was a little bit of comfort to me when I met and fell in love with a devout Catholic man and married him. And uh, I'm pretty sure that my grandmother, if she had known Tim, would have agreed that yes, in fact, Tim and probably many other Catholics were gonna be okay. Um, so I tell that story because um, I later joined the Catholic Church after eight years of spending time in weekly mass and having our children baptized Catholic and going to my brother-in-law's ordination into the Catholic priesthood. We're a big Catholic family, the Belinskys. Um, and so I later did join the Catholic Church. And it's not that I didn't acknowledge our difference. It's just that I decided that when push came to shove, I wanted to focus on those things that we have in common in our Christian faith. Thank you. <laughs> Amen, sister. <laughs> I didn't want to let our differences 
create any kind of wedge between the people of God, certainly not within my own family, which I had not happened in that period of time anyway, but within this family of God. One of the presenters at our, um, at our symposium this week said, we tether ourselves to the illusion that uniformity equals unity. And that is simply not the case when it comes to our religions, our politics, our genders, any large number of ways in which we show up in the world. Instead of celebrating our difference, we so often vilify it. But forgetting that uniformity does not equal unity. You know that we have 217 Christian denominations in the world? In the US alone, I should say. And those are just the ones people can count. Those probably don't include the, the denominations created by people who meet in their homes or in you know, basements somewhere. 217 denominations. And if we have such a challenge not vilifying each other in our own Christian beliefs, how much more difficult is it for us to cross that boundary with other religions, even those within our Abrahamic tradition, but also other spiritual beliefs, philosophies, any way of spiritual expression that people have. So how do we transcend those differences and live in unity? That's the question we were really addressing this past few days at the symposium. The title of the talk was Encountering the Stranger. How do we encounter the stranger and cultivate understanding and respect we do it by leveraging off of our differences and not creating a sense of marginalization or alienation or fear because of those differences. And we do that by simply moving toward each other, not away from each other. The, the great author and sociologist Brene Brown, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, has a new book out, in fact, called Braving the Wilderness. And she devotes an entire chapter. The whole chapter is entitled, People Are Hard to Hate Close Up. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? So we need to get closer. The stranger that we encounter can be the person who looks entirely different from us and who be behaves in ways that are unfamiliar and strange to us. But it can also be that one family member who shows up every year at the Thanksgiving table, and the minute he opens his mouth, you find yourself wondering, who are you? And how are we even related? <laughs> and so the stranger can be either of those, and in either instance, our urge as human beings is often to try to convert, to win them over to our way of thinking, sometimes through brute force. <laughs> and lately, we have another way Another urge, and that is to isolate ourselves. We have begun to isolate ourselves into these tidy little homogenous groups where everyone thinks alike, so we don't even have to encounter someone different from us. We unfriend them on Facebook like that if they disagree with our views of things. We have sorted ourselves into these clusters of people who worship alike, think alike, vote alike, recreate alike. 
In all we do, we surround ourselves with people just like us. So we forget that there are people who are not like us. And when we see them, we hardly recognize them as human beings, as people of God, as people on a spiritual journey. At the core of both of these operational approaches, both the trying to win them over by brute force conversion or by isolating ourselves so that we don't have to encounter them, at the core of both of those approaches is a belief in us versus them. And I want to give you an example. You may have heard of this. Um, it happened just recently right here at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, just a few hours away. It made national headlines, so some of you may be familiar with it. There was a group of students who were newly admitted freshmen to CSU, and they were uh, invited to come and take a tour of the campus at the Admitted Students Day. So here were these eager students and their parents taking a tour when two young men arrived late. They were maybe 15 or 20 minutes late to the, to the tour, um, which raised the eyebrows of one parent in particular, but she observed and watched them, and what she observed was these two boys uh, looked different were her words. One of them had on a hoodie that was zipped up with the hood on and his hands in his pocket. The other, she said, had a t-shirt that was sort of emblazoned with some sort of symbol that she didn't recognize. They both had black, long hair, dark skin. And within a few minutes of observing these boys in the group, the mother called 911. And when she did, she said, and the, the recording, you can listen to it if you want, um, in, her, in her recorded call to the, to the police officers on campus, she said, these boys definitely do not belong here. They are definitely not part of this tour, she said. So the police came and pulled the two boys out of the group, pulled them aside and interviewed them. And, and they said, you know, uh, there were some concerns that you were a little bit late to the group and that you didn't, you didn't have much to say, you didn't speak. The mother had said they were very quiet. And the boys said, well, we just drove six hours from New Mexico. This is our dream school. We just didn't calculate how much time it would take for us to get from the Native American reservation that they live in to Fort Collins. And so stopping for gas and snacks made them a few minutes late for the tour. Well, they showed that they had the right to be there. They had the invitation from the university right there with their confirmation. And um, so one of the questions then was, well, they mentioned that your hands were in your pockets a lot. Do you have anything in your pockets? And the young man said, well, yeah, I have a cell phone. And then they said, and they mentioned that you were very quiet. Was there a reason you guys didn't speak up at all? And the one brother turned to his other brother and nudged him and said, well, he's really shy. Now, I'm sure that the boys were mortified by this encounter, mortified more the next day when it made national news. And I have no doubt that the mother was equally mortified when she realized the extent that this had kind of gotten out of hand. But I have to wonder, and I tell you the story because I wonder what difference might it have made if she or anyone in the group had simply said to them, hey, you guys were late. Have you had a chance to meet our tour guide? Where are you guys from? Are you excited to be here? Oh, you drove six hours? No wonder you were late, right? This kind of interaction, th that kind of authentic engagement could have made a huge difference, but instead drove a wedge right between these young men because they didn't look like everybody else. 
The university, by the way, has done a fabulous job of addressing that and welcoming everyone and making a point to do that. But that kind of fear that lives in our psyche when we encounter someone who looks or behaves different from us is something we have to take on as a challenge to overcome. Authentic engagement is concerned with fostering a sense of connectedness and community in the midst of our difference. When you feel you are accepted because of your difference, not in spite of it, that's when a true sense of belonging begins to take root. When I hear the words religious tolerance, I kind of cringe. Because to tolerate something places judgment on it. It is simply to put up with something without seeing anything innately good or acceptable. You might tolerate your coworkers' tardiness every day. You might tolerate a spouse's spending habits or drinking habits. You might tolerate an acquaintance's sexist jokes. But remember that what we resist persists. And sooner or later, those things that we try so hard to ignore begin to fester. And tolerance turns to intolerance, and it turns to fear or anger and loathing. In his research on couples conflict, relationship expert John Gottman found that 69% of the time, couples argue over things they can never change. What matters to couples in conflict, he said, is not solving the problems, but changing the way in which they are discussed. Not solving the problem, but changing the way we dialogue, engaging in dialogue, not debate. He said a relationship could remain intact even in the face of unresolvable issues if a couple simply encountered each other with acceptance and humor and love and avoided the gridlock. Real change happens when we surrender the need to dominate the discussion, but to be open to others' perceptions and ways of being in the world. To engage with acceptance and not mere tolerance is to engage authentically. And it takes a little bit of humility. There's an absence of humility in many of our arenas today. But true humility says, I don't know it all, and I can't. That is the challenge of our religious faith, in fact, because religion is always a personal understanding. We always bring to it our own experiences and backgrounds and, and perspectives. And so one of the things that we can do is approach people with humility because in humility there is an understanding that there are many other ways of being and thinking and believing. One way we can do that is to recognize and acknowledge our own social location, that is the things that make us who we are, our gender, our race, our social class, our religion, our sexuality, our geographic location, and then set those aside in an effort to truly connect with other. 
This is exactly what Jesus did, in fact. He emptied himself of his divine being, his divineness. We even have a fancy word for it in theology called kenosis. It's a Greek word that means to empty oneself. Jesus was aware of his standing in the world, not that he came from a particularly high standing or a religious status, but he was aware of his standing in the world as male, Jewish, educated, young. He was aware of whatever power and privilege he brought in, in some cases, and he emptied himself of that in order to connect. And as Christ followers, we are called to emulate that. Listen to what Paul has to say in his letter to the people of Philippi. And I'm going to read from the message version. This is chapter 4 of Philippians. Paul says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Now I'm switching over to the NRSV version because I love this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Paul was talking to the Christians in Philippi, but this is a call for unity and humility for all of us to consider. lost my place reading that to you. It's an opportunity, Paul was saying, to turn back to God with humility. Jesus invites us to turn back to God at all points. But Jesus was, undec was decidedly unperturbed by the diversity that was before him. In fact, religious diversity was a fact of life in Jesus' time. And yet he called everyone his family. That was scandalous. Because loyalty to family was loyalty to Israel, which was loyalty to God. But even here, Jesus doesn't hold on to that identity, but rather empties himself again and embraces the disciples and embraces those people who came to hear him speak and gathered around him. He embraced each of them as his family. Here are my brothers and my mother, he said. Authentic engagement allows us to recognize difference and honor it and allow others to flourish. We need to be vigilant in our own self-awareness, not to fear the stranger, but to accept them as they are, as the family of God. Because we cannot transform lives by berating, belittling, ignoring, demeaning, and killing either the body or the mind or the spirit of others. The point of our religious traditions, in fact, is to transform lives 
by turning the heart to love. And we can only do that when we reach out to the stranger we encounter and seek first to understand. So I want to close this morning with a parable. It's a story that uh, an African parable of the monkey and the fish. And I first heard this uh, from a professor at Duke University. She was not at the conference this weekend, but she very well could have been. Um, she has a new book called Disunity in Christ and really calling each of us to consider how we relate as Christians, as one body of Christ. So she used this African parable, and I want to share it with you. It was the rainy season, and the rains came hard that year. The floodwaters rose quickly, and the rivers overflowed their banks. The animals scurried to safety. The four-legged animals scurried up the hillside, but not all made it. Some drowned trying to escape the waters. And the monkeys, from their high perch in the treetops, looked down and could see creatures swimming in the waters below. And the one monkey said to the other, look, those creatures have no legs. They're drowning down there. They couldn't escape fast enough. They won't survive. And the other monkey said, let's go help them. So together they went down to the sea, to the riverbank, and they began pulling the fish out of the water. <laughs> but not without some difficulty. The fish were fighting hard to keep swimming. And the monkeys persevered. And they got most of the fish out of the water and onto a big heap on the riverbank. Some of the fish, however, did escape. Finally, the monkeys, their work complete, looked at the pile of fish on the riverbank, and one of them said to the other, look, they are exhausted from trying to swim so hard. They're sleeping now. The other fish said to him, yes, they fought against us because they didn't understand our good intentions. But when they wake up, they will be so grateful to us for saving them. Now, there are so many really great things about this story and about the monkey. The monkeys really wanted to help. They wanted to connect. They noticed the fish. And they wanted to help them. But what the monkeys didn't realize is that they are distinct and unique and bring their own experiences and particularities of ways of showing up in the world that are completely apart from the fish. The monkeys had the power of that gift of being high up in the tree. But sometimes in our effort to be one, we dishonor others. And I will leave it at that for you. And please pray with me now.